Good afternoon, good evening, I'm Dove Tuzman. You're on Equal Footing, and tonight we're going to be talking about loss and failure when we're treating patients in the medical arena, the coping mechanisms that doctors have, the psychological toll that it takes on medical caregivers when they lose a patient, when a treatment fails, when they feel they could have done better. We don't often turn the lens around to the caregivers. This is the second part in a three-part series about the caregivers that we're calling Rescuing the Rescuer. Part one a couple weeks ago was with a priest and a therapist talking about when parishioners or patients are lost to crisis of faith or even suicide, God forbid and the toll that that takes. Tonight, like I said, we're going to be talking with two wonderful medical doctors who deal quite a bit with death and dying and have to cope with loss as a daily or common part of the practice of caregiving that they've chosen in life. And our next episode, to tease for the future a little bit, is going to be with lawyers who are not able ultimately to save clients that are in the crosshairs in the criminal justice system. So let's turn to tonight. Rescuing the rescuer, coping with loss and medical treatment. I'm joined this evening by Dr. Susan Clifford. Dr. Clifford is a board-certified nephrologist. She completed her medical residency and her nephrology fellowship through the New York University School of Medicine. She's practiced in both the United States and Israel. She's practiced nephrology and internal medicine for over 16 years, and she's a partner in a successful private practice in the New York area. Dr. Clifford is deeply invested in long-term patient care. She graduated from the University of Michigan originally, where she was a trainer for varsity athletes. Dr. Clifford, welcome to Equal Footing. So much for having me. I know you guys are both very busy, and I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. I want to introduce our other guest, Dr. Peter Graves. Dr. Graves is a board-certified emergency medicine physician. He's been practicing in the New England area for over 20 years. He's worked in a variety of practice settings, from urban academic medical centers to small community hospitals. He served in a leadership role as the chief of emergency medicine in a large suburban emergency department. Dr. Graves values healthy work-life balance, something we'll touch on tonight, and looks forward to a time when he and his family can fully enjoy again their passion for local and international travel. seems like that's coming here as the pandemic, at least in the United States, in its most painful and challenging form is winding down, thank God. And Dr. Graves, since the last time you've been on the show, because you and Dr. Clifford last year were wonderful guests talking about the ripple effect in other areas of healthcare from the pandemic. And at that time, we kind of teased at this topic of what it's like to deal with loss because both of you lost so many patients or had colleagues that lost many patients during the pandemic. But since you've last been on, Dr. Graves, you also got your MBA. So now you're a medical doctor and uh, have MBA off your, off your, uh, at the end of your title as well from UMass from the Eisenberg Business School. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you so much. It's great to be back. Guys, I wanted to invite you back for many months because your discussion last time was so raw and we often don't get to kind of step into the, the physician's shoes. As patients 
we often think of you as robots. You're, to me, doctors are this incredible, I put you up on a pedestal in, in many ways, both in terms of the ken of your knowledge, but also in your stoicism, in the way you're able to deal with crisis and, and have kind of that, that imperviousness to, to you. And I don't mean you, you too specifically, but the practice, the doc, the medical community at large. And I mean that with admiration. And a couple of weeks ago, we had the Reverend Dave Taylor on, and he talked about the need for stoicism in his practice tending to parishioners going through crisis and how much of a toll that that takes. So, Dr. Clifford, I thought you could get us started. As a kidney doctor, as a nephrologist, and dealing with um, diabetes and other issues, you face a lot of death and dying in your practice. Is it true that you're impervious, that you're stoical, or do you hide it? I would almost say I have a visceral response when you would describe me as stoic because I, I can't think of a word more opposite to the feelings that happen when I stand at a patient's bedside and I know they're actively dying or when I give bad news or when a patient who I have cared for for 20, you know, 15 years is passing away and you know, I, I've actually, I was so excited when you said that this was a, a topic for your show, um, because this has been something that's been near and dear to my heart as far as giving my son direction in his career choice for so long. And I, it's amazing how COVID has changed it some. But I, I think, you know, when physicians are dealing with this issue, you know, we play a certain role. We have a certain hat on. Right. And we may appear to be not affected by this stuff, but I, I can say from the bottom of my heart that there can't be anything farther from the truth. I think we understand death in a more, and for lack of a better word, logical way. Like, I can look at a... 50-year-old man that's happened this week who was who is actively dying of metastatic colon cancer. And I can look at his labs and I can look at him as a person and I can look at his imaging and his, his ultimate passing, I understand it because all the data fits. But to say, for me to say that it's not tragic for a 50-year-old man or a person of any age to pass away wouldn't be correct. Yeah, it's it's interesting to hear you talk about my reference to you as being so different than what you're feeling because I, it's that 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 power to have compassion, that ability to have deep compassion and empathy, and also to kind of keep on, to keep going, to go to the next patient. To me, is is amazing. It's uh, it's it's admirable, and I can't I can't imagine how much pain you must like carry around in a sense i want to come back to that to what you do with that what are the outlets for doctors that deal a lot with with death and dying and loss but first dr graves do you have the same reaction to my reference to the medical practice in general is kind of stoical in nature you know it's an interesting question i think my perspective is a little bit different because um, for the most part, I don't have a pre-existing relationship with the patients that I serve and, and see in the emergency department. And so, you know, many times 
when a patient suffers uh, a death or an adverse outcome and the family suffers loss, that's the first time I've met them. And so, you know, I, I, I would have to say that I, that stoicism is not something that, that I, that I, that I would exhibit. I think the, the challenge is, is to find a way to have the empathy and share the experience of the patient and their family despite the lack of a pre-existing relationship. Um, and in some ways that makes it easier because I don't have that cumulative experience with the patient and their family. But in some ways, it makes it harder because sometimes it's harder to find a, a, a transient bond uh, with the patient and their family and to experience that loss with them, which is an important part of, of what I do, even if it's for a short period of time, um, you know, consoling the, the patient and, or the consoling the, the family, I should say, or consoling the patient if there's a bad outcome from something that happens. Um, so that it's, it's a shared experience, I think, with Dr. Clifford, but from a, a different perspective and with a different timeline. That's fascinating. I didn't think about that difference. Like, Dr. Clifford, you're with your patients sometimes for, I mean, for many years, sometimes decades. And Dr. Graves, in an emergency room context, it, you could you could know a patient for, for only minutes. Uh, it, it, so it's a completely different type of relationship. Dr. Clifford, do you, do you when you look at Dr. Graves' practice, what do you think? Is that is that an easier relationship, if you will, with mourning and, and, and loss or treatment failure or death? Uh, when you look kind of at the grass on his side of the street, or or is your relationship where you have that, you know, their family and you have many years of context easier? Well, truthfully, I actually see both sides. So I have the patients who I've cared for for many, many years. I know their families. I know their wedding dates. I know their kids. I know everything. The gentleman that I referenced earlier today, earlier in the show, I just met him that day and had to have an end-of-life discussion with his significant other. So I actually ultimately end up with both sides of the spectrum, um, and kind of like every relationship is different, and you kind of learn how you have to react and how you have to behave with each patient. Um, I always say doctors are like friends. You know, you don't get along with everybody. But, you know, you you kind of see what your patient's personalities are, what their family's personalities are like, and what they might need. You know, do they need me to put my arm around them? Do they need me to um, sit there and just listen? Do they need me to um, whatever it is they need me to provide? You kind of look at who you're taking care of and try and behave accordingly. But I, I do see both both sides. Um, oftentimes when you don't have a relationship, it, like you said, it can be easier because they have no expectation of you. Interesting. D- Dr. Graves, how often do you have end-of-life discussions? Do you call them the same thing? If not, what do you call them? How often do you have them? And how do you prepare yourself to have them? Yeah, it's 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 interesting, and I am reflecting now on on, on on some of the comments. Um, you know, I, I agree there there is a shared um, experience between between both of us as physicians. And in 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 reference uh, to some of the comments, I I, I agree um, that that there is a bit of an art form of doctoring, and it's really important when we see a patient, whether we have a pre-existing relationship with them and the family or not to have the ability to 
to read a, a patient or read the family and know how we can best empathize as doctors uh, with the grieving family or the grieving patient if there's time for that. Uh, the other point I wanted to make is that there's many times in emergency medicine where we don't even have minutes or any time to get to know the patient because the patient actually died before arriving in the emergency department. Right. Um, and and after going through the process of a brief resuscitation, sometimes with good results and, and many times with none, um, it, it's really just a, a matter of interacting with a family and, 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 and figuring out a way to empathize with them and help them cope with their grief. In the middle of a busy emergency department where there's always the pressing need to move on to the next patient. So that, that to me is the challenge is, is how to, how to uh, give that empathy and give that compassion to the family that, that needs you in their, in their most difficult hour. And yet do that with the knowledge that there's 10 other patients waiting, waiting for your care, um, who have no knowledge of, of the patient. Uh, at hand and, and and shouldn't be burdened with that with that knowledge, and right. so that that's part of the challenge for me. Yeah, and it's not fair to that next patient, right? For for you to come in with anything else but your A game. So yeah, not, and you, you have to leave that happen behind you. Yeah, you have to leave that behind, and that that's part of the challenge too, because because we're human beings just like everybody else, and we grieve and we we feel pain and, and we feel empathy and grief and share that to, to some extent with the with the family, but it can be difficult to. Uh, put your your proverbial game face on and and move to the next patient who you need to treat with a, a blank slate basically and start from scratch and 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 for whom you know they shouldn't be burdened with what happened in the next room and the next patient because that that's not their issue and that's not why they're there and often they need to they need to have faith in you for for them to have the strength to go through whatever treatment or remedial courses in, in front of them. We're, we're talking with Dr. Peter Graves and Dr. Susan Clifford, an emergency medicine physician and nephrologist, respectively, who are opening up about coping and dealing with loss in the medical arena, patients that die, treatments that fail, Situations that could have been handled better. I really appreciate both of you opening up. You can participate live in this conversation on equal footing by dialing 718-303-9090. That's 718-303-9090. If you're shy about being on the air, although you don't have to say your name, you can also text a question. I know many audience members like to do to 917-428-4062. Text or WhatsApp 917 917- Four two eight four zero four zero six two to participate in this in this conversation on rescuing the rescuer, the psychological toll on medical professionals when they can't save the patient. We'll be right back on equal footing. How do you fall up? Uh, Metallica fade to black. Well, by talking about our primary sponsor, it wouldn't be possible to do these programs without our sponsors. And 
this is particularly particularly apropos sponsored tonight's discussion about the medical care arena. DocuVax. You've heard me talk about DocuVax before. It's a digital medical locker where you can securely store and validate all your basic medical information, your vaccine, immunization records, lab results, even x-rays and MRIs. Gone are the frustrating days of losing time tracking down your old medical records and your files or old computers and then trying to share results, test results, etc. with a new healthcare provider or a new insurance provider. If you subscribe to DocuVax, you get over 60 different important elements of your medical profile stored conveniently for you in one digital locker that's HIPAA compliant and fully secure from flu, COVID, and tetanus vaccines to reminders for colorectal and breast cancer screenings or previous results, your blood type information, allergy information. So to sign up, go to docuvax.com, that's D-O-C-U-V-A-X.com, or call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. As an individual subscriber, for as little as $6.99 per month, you can privately access all of your medical records. And this is the best part. Medical professionals are on call to you as a DocuVax subscriber 24 hours a day to validate a vaccine record for a third party, provide blood test information translated in a simple way to understand, or validate anything else in your medical locker. Your medical data is never accessible to anyone else unless you, as an individual subscriber, want to share it privately using the DocuVax proprietary QR code-based system that keeps your data secure. So put an end to worrying if you or someone you care about is up to date on a particular vaccine, blood test, or an important preventative screening. Take control of your medical file. With all due respect to the doctors in this program, your medical file does not belong to your doctor. It doesn't belong to your insurance company. It ultimately belongs to you. So sign up at docuvax.com and get all that information in one place, easy to use and easy to share. Call 833-859-1933. That's 833-859-1933. Operators are standing by. I've been calling You're back on equal footing. I'm Dove Tuzman. We're here with our brave guests, Dr. Susan Clifford and Dr. Peter Graves, turning the lens around from the patient to the doctor and talking about how you guys deal with loss in the workplace. So let's, I want to personalize this a little bit more. Dr. Clifford, in a given month, how many times do you deal with what you feel is failure? In the work, even if you knew it was coming, even if you knew that, you know, logically someone was going to pass, how often do you deal in a given month with failure, a loss of a patient or treatment that doesn't work or thinking, damn, I could have handled that better? And when that happens, how many of those times, sorry, I don't mean to laugh about it. How many of those times do you break down? Do you need to close the door, cry a little, shout a little, you know, have that type of reaction that I know I would have 100% of the time? I would probably say I um, am slightly above average in the emotional level that I have with my job and probably feel ups- 
said about it on a more regular basis. Um, I, I would say, you know, our minds immediately go to the patient who is passing away and the patient who we're giving a bad diagnosis to. But there's smaller things when you realize the impact of your job when, you know, this week I had a 58-year-old woman who was starting, who needed to be started on blood pressure pills and didn't understand, was having trouble and struggling with a chronic illness and the thought of having a chronic illness and why did this develop and what did she do wrong. The, the constant delivering of bad news. You know, I don't get to tell people they're pregnant. I don't get to tell people it's a boy. And I think whether it's the end of the spectrum with his death or a bad diagnosis, there's even small things that we just on, an, on a minute-to-minute basis are delivering what is ultimately bad news, what is ultimately something you don't want to hear. And I say to patients all the time, if I have nothing to say, that's a great thing. You want the doctor to have nothing to say to you because anything I would have to say is not good. And when Mm -hmm. I think about those words that I say to the patient, I definitely struggle with the fact that my job is giving bad news almost all day long on a daily basis. That's so hard. Dr. Graves, how about you? Your emergency medicine context, how many times in a given month do you feel, do you face abject failure, however you define that, in the care environment? And how many times when that happens do you break down? Do you need time alone to cry it out or shout it out? I think pretty infrequently, honestly. You know, I'm a human being, and I make mistakes every day, just like any other human being. So it's not often that I I suffer what I would consider to be a catastrophic failure of of judgment or or a medical error of some sort. But but every day I make small mistakes, and every day I, I wonder if I could have done a little bit better. And every day I face the constant pressure of the next patient to be seen and the the, the multitasking and the prioritization of, of tasking that occurs in the emergency department setting and, and think when I leave for the day, boy, I wish I could have done a better job with Mrs. So-and-so or I wish I could have spent more time with Mr. So-and-so. Um, so there's, that, that's a daily occurrence. Um, and some days are better than others, which really depends on, on how the day goes and the number of patients and the types of illnesses that I, that I see them encounter. Um, and, you know, there's a diagnosis called imposter syndrome, which is, is not uncommon amongst clinicians, and it's something that the public may not be aware of, but essentially it's something where you wonder if you're, if you're in the right job and you wonder if you're doing the right thing and you wonder if you're good enough and smart enough to, to be the doctor that you are. And there's days when that happens, too. You know, I've been doing this for more than 20 years, and I've seen tens of thousands of patients with an you know, incredibly broad spectrum of, of illness and injury. And, and for the vast majority of those patients, I've done a great job and have saved countless lives and have impacted so many patients in a positive way. But there's others that I think I've failed, and there's many for whom I think I could have done a little bit better job. And so, you know, you go through that from time to time, and I'm not one to break down. Um, I, there have been some times in my job when I've had to uh, pronounce a, a young child uh, dead, for example, from drowning or from a sudden infant death syndrome situation or something like that. And, and those are the cases that that haunt me because I too am a parent and I and I, I know 
how I would feel as a parent if my child were to die. And so there's the, I can count the times that I've cried or broken down or needed a little bit of time to myself on, on one hand over the years. So it's not a monthly occurrence, it's not an annual occurrence, but, but once in a while. And those are the ones that I remember and will always remember. Um, and I also remember the, the cases where I think I could have done a better job and perhaps there wasn't a great outcome. Perhaps the patient had to return to the ER or get some sort of different care or something something different was done that, that maybe I missed and I could have done better. So those things those things you live with and that's a that's a burden that, that I carry and that, that's part of the job. But I think one of the most important things for all physicians is to find some coping skills to help deal with those challenges which are a frequent occurrence. I want to come back to the coping skills and also the concept of admitting to when things are wrong or looking for for help. But first, I want to touch on a really sensitive subject. And if I'm going somewhere that you don't feel comfortable with, uh, Dr. Clifford, I'll start with you, kind of builds on Dr. Grace's last comment. Please just stop me. Uh, it's your it's your right to uh, to say no to the, to, to the question or say you don't want to answer. When I hear you talking, Dr. Graves, about the dealing with loss in the clinical setting, and then you t- you, you talk about you're also a, you're also a parent, I think about that you must need to create a different type of relationship with death and and suffering in the clinical practice than you do at home, or, you, or it could be a recipe for 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 tremendous you know mental health challenges so but as human beings you also do face loss and dr clifford i know since we did our last show your your father passed and as i recall on the last show we did i believe you had just found out about his terminal diagnosis if i recall correctly and you, it was incredible that you were able to join us. And I know you were in a lot of pain. I don't think we, it came up on the show or you didn't, didn't want to violate a confidence. But, you know, here tonight you gave me a permission to at least open up this question. How has that process of confronting end-of-life conversations and mourning been different than in the in your clinical practice other than of course that you the person was closer to you is there some different chip that you think is used do you do you have to do or has your work as a physician actually in some way helped you in that family context and helped you in the context of loss in your personal life well, great, great questions, and yes, the, the night of our last show, my father had um, just arrived in the emergency room, and we just saw the CAT scans that showed that the cancer was all over his body, and, um, you know, what, one of the big lessons I had given residents for many, many years, I had always said to them, no matter how hard your day is, it's always easier to be the doctor than to be the patient. And everyone should experience what it's like to be a patient. But what I didn't realize at that time with that lesson was to understand what it is to be a family member and what it is to wait for the doctor to call to tell you what a result is and what it's like when you see a family member when you actually go home with it. You know, I hear about the, 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 the symptoms and I hear about the struggles and then the patient leaves 
and what it is to go home with the drain in and what it is to be see a family member who can no longer eat anymore and a family member that can no longer walk and a family member that can no longer go up the stairs anymore. And I, I never quite thought of what it felt like to be in that position. And now when I do my end-of-life discussions with families, and again I'll reference the, that 50-year-old gentleman that I helped this week, speaking with his significant other of 25 years, what it feels like to be her. And having walked in her shoes um, a little bit more. That's, uh, that's intense. I appreciate you being willing to, to talk about that, Dr. Clifford. And I hope that this show helps patients and doctors who are listening uh, empathize with with each other a little bit more than they might otherwise. I, I often think, and now I'm coming back, Dr. Graves, to your last comment about when you think, could I have done something better? Did I make the right decision? How tough it must be for those professions like being an emergency room doctor or a nephrologist or surgeon or a criminal defense lawyer or a prosecutor or a judge or a police officer where admitting a mistake is so frigging hard because of the consequence that mistake could have or because of the legal consequence of admitting that mistake given the malpractice laws or you know legal consequences in the criminal justice system or there are some some professions where there is no such thing as a mistake like for for uh, pros- professional prosecutors They're, you know they've never convicted an innocent person so it's like these as an I've been an entrepreneur my my whole profession, most of my professional life, and also in creative expression like this show, and in some sense the careers I've been in are all about admitting mistakes. In fact, we had a show a few weeks ago that was about all the serious critique, <laughs> you know, hate mail and other correspondences that we got with critique around this show over the last year. And entrepreneurship is all you know often about embracing your failures and learning from them. But you guys have it so tough being in a profession where it is so there the barrier to admitting. A mistake, or 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 talk talking about you know errors that you might be prone to or might have made. It's so the barrier is so high. Am I right? I could be wrong on that. You guys might be rolling your eyes. Doctor Graves, have I hit on something here? Well, I think that's one hundred percent accurate, and I think um, there's something called the the second victim that I'd like to bring up, which touches on all of these issues. And I would say that historically, the medical profession has been one in which mistakes were not allowed to be made. If they were made, the retributions from those uh, mistakes were somewhat uh, punitive. Um, but as, as, as we've evolved um, as, a, as a profession and as, a, as times have changed, I think we all recognize that there, there is a second victim when it comes to mistakes that are made. Um, and let's face it, we're all human. We all do make mistakes from time to time, no matter how experienced we are, no matter how confident or well-trained we are. We're human beings. And so when a mistake is made, of course, the first victim is the patient. And there's a, a great deal of attention paid to that, and, and duly so. But the second victim is, is the person who made that mistake. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of sequelae to a medical profession, a medical professional from, from making an error, a lot of guilt, a lot of internalization, a lot of downstream psychological effects, uh, depression and suicide. I think we all know that the physician's suicide rate is, is amongst the highest of any, any profession. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly in, in emergency medicine, for example, the burnout rate is extraordinarily high. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of attention being paid to that concept recently. And I can give you an example. Yeah, so no, when I, sorry when, for the interruption, Dr. Graves. I think also for listeners' ahead. benefit, addiction rates are, any depending on the area of medical practice, are anywhere between 20 and 50% higher with doctors. And actually, apropos to this program, particularly with doctors like emergency medicine physicians, nephrologists, who deal with death and dying quite a bit, the addiction rate is even higher on a relative basis. So there is, definitely we need to have a greater awareness about this, this second victim and the need to care for the caregivers. Sorry for the interruption. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think, you know, I mentioned before that, that, you know, many people need to find some sort of coping mechanism for the stressors that they encounter at, at their work on a day-to-day basis. And, and many people have uh, adaptive, healthy coping mechanisms, uh, you know, exercise, a, a healthy support, you know, for a, a family that's very supportive and willing to talk, uh, things like that. But many people have maladaptive coping mechanisms as well, whether it's overeating or, or substance or drug abuse. And so, so I agree with your comments entirely. And I, I was going to mention briefly just a, a quick example. Um, you know, I had a, a practitioner that was under my supervision at my former uh, employment. And, and, and this person, this doctor made a medical error and it caused the death of a patient. And uh, it was a, a fairly egregious error. It was pretty obvious. Um, and it was something um, that anyone could have made, and it certainly wasn't done intentionally. But the reaction of the medical community was more punitive right off the bat right. uh, to try and figure out what happened, what to do about it, you know, to whom should this practitioner be reported, as opposed to supportive um, and offering this practitioner um, resources to help cope with their, with their understandable uh, remorse and grief surrounding the episode. So it, it's something that I, I feel I could have done a better job with supporting this clinician, and it's, mm. a, it's an everyday occurrence in medicine. That's really insightful. We're going to take a break in a moment, come back talking about res- the concept of rescuing the rescuer, caring for the caregiver, turning around the lens, in this case to medical doctors, and how they cope with loss, how they cope with patients who die, treatment failures, etc. We'll be back in a minute on equal footing. I wanted to, to your last point, Dr. Graves, read a quick quote by Atul Gawande, who you guys probably know is a public health kind of advocate and researcher and writer for The New Yorker and so forth. And he said, we look for medicine to be an orderly field of knowledge and procedure, but it is most definitely not. It is an imperfect science, an enterprise of constantly changing knowledge, uncertain information, failable individuals, and most of all, their lives on the line on both sides, the provided for and the care provider. We'll be right back on Equal Funding. Mama, take this badge off of me I can't use it anymore It's getting dark, too dark to see I'm knocking on heaven's door Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door Equal 
Footing with Dove Tuzman is sponsored by MDCS Dermatology, your experts in skincare. With two Manhattan locations and four offices in Long Island, including Plainview and Comac, the dermatologists and skincare surgeons at MDCS are proud to be affiliated with the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So schedule your next skin exam in one of MDCS's convenient New York area locations. To make an appointment, go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-DERM. That's 212-661-3376. You can even schedule a virtual video visit with MDCS's board-certified dermatologists from the comfort and safety of your own home. So go to www.mdcs.live or call 212-661-3376. And don't forget to mention Equal Footing for 15% off all cosmetic procedures. I've been caught, but I'm keeping on, keeping on I've been all right, you're back on Equal Footing. I'm Dove Tusman. We're talking about caring for the caregivers the psychological toll that's felt by doctors when they just can't save the patient or they're facing death and dying in the clinical environment or simply treatment failure. And I really appreciate Dr. Peter Graves, an emergency medicine physician, and Dr. Susan Clifford, a nephrologist, for being on the program and being so open. I also appreciate the patients, the callers who have been waiting, and also for we'll get to some text questions. Actually, Prior to the break, we were talking about the rates of addiction, uh, rates of suicide, and so forth being higher within the, the for doctors, particularly doctors that are dealing with enormous stress and, and death, death and dying in the clinical environment day to day. And to the to the point of caring for people in that position, Mindy sent uh, a question that I'll, I'll direct to you, Dr. Clifford. How do you switch it all off when you go home, or can you? Great question. Um, I I definitely have to make a conscious effort to not bring it home. It, it is an active process of saying, okay, this is done, and, you know, you take a bunch of deep breaths and you kind of bring your stress level down, and it is an, a conscious and an active exercise to try and stop feeling the weight of, of the day. Are you successful at it, generally? I try to be. Um, I, I'm definitely someone who wears her emotions very outwardly, and it, I, I struggle with it. I work on it. You know, in the bigger span of things, you can say, oh, exercise helps. And ha- I mean, I have an amazing support system. Um, I have so many people who help me and talk to me and look out for me. But when you deal with death and dying on a daily basis, this is our every day. Um, I walk into a hospital every day. I, someone at the end of the week or when I come back from vacation and I ask my staff, did anyone pass away last week? And you will see people, and I'm sure this happens to Dr. Graves even more than me, where someone comes up to you and says, hey, Dr. Clifford, thank you so much, and you have no idea who they are, but one day you saved their life. And these are experiences, like, how, how do you talk to yourself and get yourself through when someone recognizes you and you've done all this, you've changed the course of their life, you've changed the course of their, your family, their family's life, 
and you don't even remember them because every day your job is to save is to save lives, and that's a bi- that's a big burden when that's your every day. Right. You know, as you uh, just wrote that, uh, as just said that rather, we got a, uh, another text question in. This is from from Rick, and it, I think it, it plays to your last point, Doctor Clifford. He says, in the U.S. Doctors don't have time to tend to the patient. They only tend to the symptoms, I think. If I pay a doctor an extra $1,200 per year in addition to the insurance, maybe he can afford to spend 20 20 minutes with me when I need him, for example. During a time of extreme suffering and pain, the doctor, I think, must tend to the soul in addition to the body and the symptoms. Maybe that would be cathartic and needed by the doctor, too. Comments? I can't agree with that point more. And... My only response is there's not a physician here who would not prefer to spend more time at that patient's bedside. The physician is not leaving because they don't want to be there, and they're not leaving because they don't care. They're leaving because of the pressures that are put on them that you have to see X number of patients a day because you have to see, do all of this work because you have to check the boxes in the EM, in the electronic medical records. I, I don't think that there are physicians, for the most part, for the most part, when there's a grieving soul, I think most of us go into this profession because we want to help that grieving soul, and it's more than just the symptoms. Unfortunately, there are constraints that make it so that we can't do that, and unfortunately, a lot of that, is based on money and revenue and things like that. I can't resist but read this other comment. I don't think this is a question, but it's kind of funny. It's, it's to Dr. Clifford's last point, another text that just came in. I went to the urologist in Brazil, and he stayed, I guess this this uh, the listener from Brazil, and he stayed with me for one hour talking about my urological health, my sex life, other private things, so on, and now I don't even remember his name. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I mean, I can imagine, Doctor Graves. What brought you into this field? Are you? Do you? Did you get into it to some degree on the spectrum of what Doctor Clifford just referred to? And if you did, do you still feel that day to day? Yeah, no, I agree with Doctor Clifford, and I think at the heart of any physician's career goals is, is the desire to help other people. Uh, and for me in particular, I chose emergency medicine because I wanted to be able to save people's lives acutely. I wanted to have the knowledge and experience to, to step in no matter what the situation was and and fix it. Um, but, but I agree. I, I, I really enjoy spending time with patients. I find myself um, constrained on many occasions by um, other patients um, that need to be seen, um, government and hospital regulations of documentation, a, a variety of things that I think all physicians struggle with these days. But, you know, it's interesting. One, one of the, the side effects of COVID-19 and the decreased volumes of patients that would come to the ER as a result was that I was actually able to spend a lot more time with patients because we were seeing far fewer patients coming in for one reason uh, or another. That's really interesting. And I found it, I found it really enjoyable because I actually had time to... To, to spend another 5, even 10, 15 minutes with a patient in the emergency department setting and learn a little bit more about them than just the reasons that brought them to the ER. So I, I found it uh, rather enjoyable in many ways, and I, I would love to see a day when, when we all have the opportunity to spend a little bit more time with our patients to help them. 
It it it, it uh, reminds me of one of the quotes that I found looking in studying for this show, and it was the French philosopher and great wit Voltaire who said, "The art of medicine consists of amusing the patient." while the remedy cures the disease. <laughs> I wish there was more of that, you know. It feels like there's been a bit of a disconnect because, like, because of the, the way the insurance and the medical care system works. And so hopefully this show does a little part in kind of bringing us together as uh, medical caregivers and those being provided care. Uh, one more question that's come up in through through the, the, the texting option here has to do with the concept of before and after. Dr. Graves, without getting into more of the, the question, what is that? Is that something that that uh, kind of a, a given term? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting interesting concept, and and, and to me, that's another uh, another phenomenon of the job that that weighs on me from time to time. Although it's transient, it for me, it's the time when I'm seeing a patient and I learn of a test result. Uh, perhaps an imaging study that shows uh, bleeding inside the brain or a cancer somewhere. And I know that for that brief moment in time, I'm the only person that knows that, and the patient and their family are waiting for that result. Sorry, for the audience, you you know at that moment that patient's going to die. I know at that moment the patient's going to have a bad outcome and, and possibly die. And for that brief moment in time, I'm the only person on the planet that knows that. And that's an interesting, almost surreal time when I have to think about how am I going to break this news to the patient? How is it going to affect them or their family? What am I going to say to them? How am I going to answer their questions and ameliorate their suffering or their concerns? And it, it's a it's a unique time, kind of a surreal time in the day when, whenever that occurs. And then moments later, I have to break that news to the patient and give them that burden. Uh, which they've never had. You know, they're waiting for good news. They're waiting for reassuring news, and I'm delivering bad news. Right. And that 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 could be a challenging time, of course, for the patient, but also for the medical provider. Dr. Clifford, do you resonate with that? This this concept of the before and after that moment before the di- the bad diagnosis has been delivered, and that being particularly challenging. Absolutely, it it's a, another form of weight that's put on our shoulders. It's a, a very common feeling. Uh, it's so, something we deal with on a regular basis. It goes back to what I was saying before, that our jobs, we I deliver bad news on a daily basis. And sometimes those things are a cancer diagnosis. Sometimes, the, you know, in the ER, it's probably more, you know, with the brain bleeds and finding a, a lung cancer when someone comes in with a cough. And we, we definitely get that as outpatient and inpatient in, in my field as well. But there, there is burden when it's something slightly smaller. You know, when I say, well, I got your blood work back this month and your kidney function is worse. Right. We're that much closer to dialysis. Um, I think now is the time I need to refer you for a kidney transplant. We need to find donors for right. you. And that burden can be there for things that are very large and big and what we more often see on, you know, medical television shows versus versus real life, which is the smaller things as well. Right. So 
that's that second victim concept as well that Dr. Graves was, was mentioning before. There's like it's 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 obviously incredibly burdensome for the patient, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it's also burdensome to deliver that type of news day in and day out for the care provider. So when we can all hug comfortably again, give your doctor a hug. <laughs> We're going to take a, a, a caller's uh, comment or question before we go to our, our, our last break. Uh, caller on line three. How are you tonight? Good evening, Dolph. Hi, is it Stan? You got it. How are you? Good evening. Nice to hear your voice. Je- uh, lady, uh, doctors, doctors, uh, over the last five to six months, no amount of time in our history of this country has seen more people die per day in hospitals than in this time. Never in our lifetimes, yours, mine, hundreds if not thousands dying every day. And yet, people like yourselves could and could not do anything. Nothing. Other than watch and see and hope that this would come and that there would be a cure and we'd get a thing. In our lifetimes, this has happened where medicine was crippled to a large extent. I want to know, and I want to know from both of you, uh, I've heard one or two doctors have committed suicide. What is the suicide rate among doctors during this time that we don't know about? I know many doctors have died trying to save people at, at their own lives, knowing that there was no cure and so forth. But as I said, the worst of times for medicine, the absolute worst, and for doctors. What have you known or what have you learned uh, on suicide rates of doctors during this time? Stan, I, I, I want to thank you for that, that question. It's, uh, sorry, it's a little noise. Stan, thank you for that question. There, there, I personally was touched by this, uh, a friend who I had uh, gone to school with who was also an emergency room doctor like Dr. Graves, uh, actually took her life, uh, over the summer, kind of in one of the lowest points of the pandemic. And the, the toll must have been enormous and it was certainly one of the things that led us to do this show. Dr. Clifford, do you want to take a crack at Stan's question? I will say for me personally, a slight deviation from his question, pre-COVID, if you asked me would I tell my son to go into medicine, I would tell him no because it's too sad. For a variety of reasons, people advise against careers in medicine, and I would always say I think it's too sad. No one should walk into a hospital every day of their life. Post-COVID... I've actually had a little bit of a change of heart because despite all the dying, you really really realize how impactful we can be. I think in the United States, albeit more death than I had ever seen before, I actually really saw our impact and how many we actually saved. Right. And how people really went to lengths beyond what they had ever done before and really saw how impactful the medical community, and that, that's not just doctors, but, you know, doctors, nurses, transporters, the cafeteria, everybody could be. And it actually, for me, made the profession of medicine kind of get light again. Um, I'm in. That being said, I think the, the toll from a mental health point of view, there's no question on everyone after there will be post-traumatic stress disorder from this. What we saw 
um, over the last year, specifically in New York, New Jersey area, in March, April, May, like no other point of time in our careers. And there are resources, we'll put them in the show notes, particularly for doctors and other medical caregivers to and psychiatric caregivers. There are hotlines, there are 24-hour resources when when you're feeling uh, lost or you, you need help because those types of mental health crises are not exclusive to any any particular cohort. They affect all of us as human beings and particularly a profession where it's so intense, intense and lives are on the line. We'll be right back on Equal Footing, talking about rescuing the rescuer, caring for the caregiver with Dr. Susan Clifford and Dr. Peter Graves. So always look on the bright side of death. Just before you draw your terminal breath. Life's a piece of shit when you look at it. Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true You'll see it's all a show, keep them laughing as you go Just remember that the last laugh is on you And always look on the bright side of life I ask, what show, what other show is on the radio that can actually have Metallica and Monty Python in the same program? Okay, last two sponsors for Equal Footing tonight. Very important. Definitely last but not least. You've heard us talk about Manhattan Medical. Now, Manhattan Medical's message is particularly around what they can do for men, but also women and other men that are attentive to the emotional pain that people have with erectile dysfunction. You're not able to have enjoyable sex, and it can affect intimacy and partnership in so many ways. But Manhattan Medical can help. Manhattan Medical utilizes a new, very effective gains wave therapy. It can help you achieve excellent results without expensive blue pills, without invasive surgery, and it's free and, excuse me, it's not free. <laughs> it's very inexpensive, but it's surgery free and it's painless. With Manhattan Medical, there are no side effects, and for most patients, there are wonderful results. Actually, Manhattan Medical came to equal footing because I have a friend who's in his 80s and just couldn't give in to the fact that he no longer could have an enjoyable sex life, and he reached out to Manhattan Medical having not had success with traditional ED therapies, and it worked for him. So see if Manhattan Medical's gains wave therapy can help you. Call now. And if you mention Equal Footing, you get a free consultation. That has real value. That's 888-EDQ-R9. So the number again, 888-EDQ-R9 or 888-332-8739. That's 888-332-8739. And again, mention Equal Footing and you get a free consultation. Okay. And our... Last sponsor of the night, thank you to Mechanical Art Capital. We're brought in part to you by Mechanical Art Capital, which offers financing to watch collectors and watch dealers from anywhere in the world. 
If you have a watch collection or you're a small or medium-sized dealer with significant inventory, you can unlock the cash value of your watch collection today. It's super easy. You take your inventory and you do a, a guaranteed buyback contract with Mechanical Art Capital, about two pages long. You get your money in 24 to 48 hours. So for more information on Mechanical Art Capital, call 833-209-0972. That's 833 833- Two zero nine zero nine seven two. Operators are standing by, or you can visit them at mechanicalartcapital.com. Okay, you're back on equal footing. I'm Dove Tusman. We're joined by Dr. Peter Graves and Dr. Susan Clifford talking about caring for the caregiver, the stresses and the psychological toll that doctors have when they confront death and dying, treatment failure, and the other vagaries of the profession and how how we don't often provide enough care and there's not enough understanding on this issue. To wrap us up, I want to do what we often do at the end of the Equal Footing Program, which is ask our guests to take a little bit of a devil's advocacy position. And so I'm going to refer to the outset of the program where I'm, I'm stylizing this a little bit. But Dr. Clifford, you talked about how you're probably more than average emotive around your clinical practice. And Dr. Graves, you said you could count on, you know, one hand, um, how, how many times you've kind of really had a, a catastrophic event in the practice where you've kind of had, you know, to some degree broken down on it and meaning had an emotional, really emotional reaction. So let's take a, the devil's advocacy and, and Dr. Graves, why do you, why would you say that, that, uh, doctors need to be in general more emotional, uh, put their guard down more, be more willing to, to, to make mistakes and kind of open up about this second victim dynamic that we spoke about earlier in the show with their patients, if you were taking an advocacy position? Well, I think that's, that's an important part of, of doctoring uh, and, and the, the, the skill and art of doctoring. I think early in my career, I, I was perhaps uh, a, li- a little bit more of an automaton, um, a little bit more stoic, uh, learned to put up barriers between my my emotions and my patients, and that that's kind of a coping skill that you know we all learn for better or for worse during our residency training and beyond. But as I've as I've grown up, as I've matured, as I've become a, a, a husband and a parent, um, and as I've gained more experience, I've I've learned to develop uh, more of a bond with the patient and share my emotions and, and share some humor and share some. Um, approachability and compassion and empathy with the patient, and, and I'm a better doctor for it. And that, that took a long time to, to learn. So I think that's that's crucially important because it also allows us to to feel pain, feel emotion, and and to heal um, whenever there is a bad outcome or something happens that, that's untoward. Doctor Clifford, Doctor Clifford, wrap us up. We've got 30 seconds left. Uh, what what's the advocacy position? for uh, your patients? What should your patients do or patients do in general to connect more with their doctors? I think they ultimately need to find the physician that they sit with from a personality perspective. As I said earlier in the show, doctors are like friends. You don't get along with anyone, everyone. 
Um, and I think ultimately patients need to pick a physician that they can speak with, they can feel, feel vulnerable near, that they're willing to discuss anything with. And, you know, my style doesn't work for everybody, but my yeah. style works for a lot of people. So, t- so, patients, can, so patients need to, to take yes. more more advocacy in their own process of pairing mm-hmm. with doctors. Mm-hmm. Dr. Clifford, Dr. Graves, thanks for being on Equal Footing, and I hope we're able to have you again. Thank you so much. Thank you. We'll be riding the train without you tonight. The train that keeps on moving, black smoke scorching the evening sky. A million stars shining above us like every soul living and dead. It's been gathered together by God, sing a hymn over your bones. Sundown, sundown, empty out the fairgrounds. We now, my ancient village.